This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Facts Concerning the Late Arthur German and His Family by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Gildart Jackson. It comes to us courtesy of Blackstone Audio and their collection, Eldritch Tales. The story runs 28 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. Facts Concerning the Late Arthur German and His Family Read by Gildert Jackson Life is a hideous thing, and from the background behind what we know of it peer demoniacal hints of truth which make it sometimes a thousandfold more hideous. Science, already oppressive with its shocking revelations, will perhaps be the ultimate exterminator of our human species, if separate species we be, for its reserve of unguessed horrors could never be borne by mortal brains if loosed upon the world. If we knew what we are, we should do as Sir Arthur German did, and Arthur German soaked himself in oil and set fire to his clothing one night. No one placed the charred fragments in an urn or set a memorial to him who had been, for certain papers and a certain boxed object were found, which made men wish to forget. Some who knew him do not admit that he ever existed. Arthur Jermyn went out on the moor and burned himself after seeing the boxed object which had come from Africa. It was this object, and not his peculiar personal appearance, which made him end his life. Many would have disliked to live if possessed of the peculiar features of Arthur Jermyn, but he had been a poet and scholar, and had not minded. Learning was in his blood, for his great-grandfather, Sir Robert Jermyn, baronet, had been an anthropologist of note, whilst his great-great-great-grandfather, Sir Wade Jermyn, was one of the earliest explorers of the Congo region, and had written eruditely of its tribes, animals, and supposed antiquities. Indeed, old Sir Wade had possessed an intellectual zeal amounting almost to a mania, his bizarre conjectures on a prehistoric white Congolese civilization earning him much ridicule when his book, Observations on the Several Parts of Africa, was published. In 1765, this fearless explorer had been placed in a madhouse at Huntington. Madness was in all the Germans, and people were glad there were not many of them. The line put forth no branches, and Arthur was the last of it. If he had not been, one cannot say what he would have done when the object came. The Germans never seemed to look quite right. Something was amiss, though Arthur was the worst, and the old family portraits of German house showed fine faces enough before Sir Wade's time. Certainly the madness began with Sir Wade, whose wild stories of Africa were at once the delight and terror of his few friends. 
It showed in his collection of trophies and specimens, which were not such as a normal man would accumulate and preserve, and appeared strikingly in the oriental seclusion in which he kept his wife. The latter, he had said, was the daughter of a Portuguese trader whom he had met in Africa, and did not like English ways. She, with an infant son born in Africa, had accompanied him back for the second and longest of his trips, and had gone with him on the third and last, never returning. No one had ever seen her closely, not even the servants, for her disposition had been violent and singular. During her brief stay at German House, she occupied a remote wing and was waited on by her husband alone. Sir Wade was indeed most peculiar in his solicitude for his family, for when he returned to Africa, he would permit no one to care for his young son save a loathsome black woman from Guinea. Upon coming back after the death of Lady Jermyn, he himself assumed complete care of the boy. But it was the talk of Sir Wade, especially when in his cups, which chiefly led his friends to deem him mad. In a rational age like the eighteenth century, it was unwise for a man of learning to talk about wild sights and strange scenes under a Congo moon, of the gigantic walls and pillars of a forgotten city, crumbling and vine-grown, and of damp, silent stone steps leading interminably down into the darkness of abysmal treasure vaults and inconceivable catacombs. Especially was it unwise to rave of the living things that might haunt such a place, of creatures half of the jungle and half of the impiously aged city, fabulous creatures which even a Pliny might describe with scepticism, things that might have sprung up after the great apes had overrun the dying city with the walls and the pillars, the vaults and the weird carvings. Yet, after he came home for the last time, Sir Wade would speak of such matters with a shudderingly uncanny zest, mostly after his third glass at the knight's head, boasting of what he had found in the jungle and how he had dwelt among terrible ruins known only to him. And, finally, he had spoken of the living things in such a manner that he was taken to the madhouse. He had shown little regret when shut into the barred room at Huntingdon, for his mind moved curiously. Ever since his son had commenced to grow out of infancy, he had liked his home less and less, till at last he had seemed to dread it. The knight's head had been his headquarters, and when he was confined he expressed some vague gratitude as if for protection. Three years later he died. Wade Jermyn's son, Philip, was a highly peculiar person. Despite a strong physical resemblance to his father, his appearance and conduct were in many particulars so coarse that he was universally shunned. Though he did not inherit the madness which was feared by some, he was densely stupid and given to brief periods of uncontrollable violence. In frame he was small, but intensely powerful, and was of incredible agility. Twelve years after succeeding to his title, he married the daughter of his gamekeeper, a person said to be of gypsy extraction, 
but before his son was born, joined the Navy as a common sailor, completing the general disgust which his habits and misalliance had begun. After the close of the American War, he was heard of as a sailor on a merchantman in the African trade, having a kind of reputation for feats of strength and climbing, but finally disappearing one night as his ship lay off the Congo coast. In the son of Sir Philip Jermyn, the now-accepted family peculiarity took a strange and fatal turn. Tall and fairly handsome, with a sort of weird eastern grace, despite certain slight oddities of proportion, Robert Jermyn began life as a scholar and investigator. It was he who first studied scientifically the vast collection of relics which his mad grandfather had brought from Africa, and who made the family name as celebrated in ethnology as in exploration. In 1815, Sir Robert married a daughter of the seventh Viscount Brightholm, and was subsequently blessed with three children, the eldest and youngest of whom were never publicly seen on account of deformities in mind and body. Saddened by these family misfortunes, the scientist sought relief in work and made two long expeditions in the interior of Africa. In 1849, his second son, Neville, a singularly repellent person who seemed to combine the surliness of Philip Jermyn with the auteur of the Brighthomes, ran away with a vulgar dancer, but was pardoned upon his return in the following year. He came back to Jermyn House a widower with an infant son, Alfred, who was one day to be the father of Arthur Jermyn. Friends said that it was this series of griefs which unhinged the mind of Sir Robert Jermyn, yet it was probably merely a bit of African folklore which caused the disaster. The elderly scholar had been collecting legends of the Onga tribes near the field of his grandfather's and his own explorations, hoping in some way to account for Sir Wade's wild tales of a lost city, peopled by strange, hybrid creatures. A certain consistency in the strange papers of his ancestor suggested that the madman's imagination might have been stimulated by native myths. On October the 19th, 1852, the explorer Samuel Seaton called at German House with a manuscript of notes collected among the Ongas, believing that certain legends of a grey city of white apes ruled by a white god might prove valuable to the ethnologist. In his conversation he probably supplied many additional details, the nature of which will never be known, since a hideous series of tragedies suddenly burst into being. When Sir Robert Jermyn emerged from his library, he left behind the strangled corpse of the explorer, and before he could be restrained, had put an end to all three of his children— the two who were never seen, and the son who had run away. Neville German died in the successful defence of his own two-year-old son, who had apparently been included in the old man's madly murderous scheme. Sir Robert himself, after repeated attempts at suicide, and a stubborn refusal to utter any articulate sound, died of apoplexy in the second year of his confinement. Sir Alfred Jermyn was a baronet before his fourth birthday, but his tastes never matched his title. 
At twenty he had joined a band of music hall performers, and at thirty-six had deserted his wife and child to travel with an itinerant American circus. His end was very revolting. Among the animals in the exhibition with which he travelled was a huge bull gorilla of lighter colour than the average, a surprisingly tractable beast of much popularity with the performers. With this gorilla, Alfred Jermyn was singularly fascinated, and on many occasions the two would eye each other for long periods through the intervening bars. Eventually, Jermyn asked and obtained permission to train the animal, astonishing audiences and fellow performers alike with his success. One morning in Chicago, as the gorilla and Alfred Jermyn were rehearsing an exceedingly clever boxing match, the former delivered a blow of more than usual force, hurting both the body and dignity of the amateur trainer. Of what followed, members of the greatest show on earth do not like to speak. They did not expect to hear Sir Alfred Jermyn emit a shrill, inhuman scream or to see him seize his clumsy antagonist with both hands, dash it to the floor of the cage, and bite fiendishly at its hairy throat. The gorilla was off its guard, but not for long, and before anything could be done by the regular trainer, the body, which had belonged to a baronet, was past recognition. 2. Arthur Jermyn was the son of Sir Alfred Jermyn and a music-hall singer of unknown origin. When the husband and father deserted his family, the mother took the child to Jermyn House, where there was none left to object to her presence. She was not without notions of what a nobleman's dignity should be, and saw to it that her son received the best education which limited money could provide. The family resources were now sadly slender, and Jermyn House had fallen into woeful disrepair, but young Arthur loved the old edifice and all its contents. He was not like any other Jermyn who had ever lived, for he was a poet and a dreamer. Some of the neighbouring families who had heard tales of old Sir Wade Jermyn's unseen Portuguese wife declared that her Latin blood must be showing itself— but most persons merely sneered at his sensitiveness to beauty, attributing it to his music-hall mother, who was socially unrecognised. The poetic delicacy of Arthur Jermyn was the more remarkable because of his uncouth personal appearance. Most of the Germans had possessed a subtly odd and repellent cast, but Arthur's case was very striking— it is hard to say just what he resembled, but his expression, his facial angle, and the length of his arms gave a thrill of repulsion to those who met him for the first time. It was the mind and character of Arthur Jermyn which atoned for his aspect. Gifted and learned, he took highest honours at Oxford and seemed likely to redeem the intellectual fame of his family. Though of poetic rather than scientific temperament, he planned to continue the work of his forefathers in African ethnology and antiquities, utilising the truly wonderful, though strange, collection of Sir Wade. 
With his fanciful mind, he thought often of the prehistoric civilization in which the mad explorer had so implicitly believed, and would weave tale after tale about the silent jungle city mentioned in the latter's wilder notes and paragraphs. For the nebulous utterances concerning a nameless, unsuspected race of jungle hybrids, he had a peculiar feeling of mingled terror and attraction. Speculating on the possible basis of such a fancy, and seeking to obtain light among the more recent data gleaned by his great-grandfather and Samuel Seaton amongst the Ongas. In 1911, after the death of his mother, Sir Arthur Jermyn determined to pursue his investigations to the utmost extent. Selling a portion of his estate to obtain the requisite money, he outfitted an expedition and sailed for the Congo. Arranging with the Belgian authorities for a party of guides, he spent a year in the Onga and Kaliri country, finding data beyond the highest of his expectations. Among the Kaliris was an aged chief called Mwanu, who possessed not only a highly retentive memory, but a singular degree of intelligence and interest in old legends. This ancient confirmed every tale which Jermyn had heard, adding his own account of the stone city and the white apes as it had been told to him. According to Mwanu, the grey city and the hybrid creatures were no more, having been annihilated by the warlike Umbangus many years ago. This tribe, after destroying most of the edifices and killing the live beings, had carried off the stuffed goddess which had been the object of their quest, the white ape goddess which the strange beings worshipped, and which was held by Congo tradition to be the form of one who had reigned as a princess among those beings. Just what the white ape-like creatures could have been, Mwanu had no idea, but he thought they were the builders of the ruined city. Jermyn could form no conjecture, but by close questioning obtained a very picturesque legend of the stuffed goddess. The ape princess, it was said, became the consort of a great white god who had come out of the west. For a long time they had reigned over the city together, but when they had a son, all three went away. Later the god and the princess had returned, and upon the death of the princess, her divine husband had mummified the body and enshrined it in a vast house of stone, where it was worshipped. Then he had departed alone. The legend here seemed to present three variants. According to one story, nothing further happened, save that the stuffed goddess became a symbol of supremacy for whatever tribe might possess it. It was for this reason that the Unbangus carried it off. A second story told of the god's return and death at the feet of his enshrined wife. A third told of the return of the son, grown to manhood, or apehood, or godhood, as the case might be, yet unconscious of his identity. Surely the imaginative blacks had made the most of whatever events might lie behind the extravagant legendary. Of the reality of the jungle city described by old Sir Wade, Arthur Jermyn had no further doubt, and was hardly astonished when early in 1912 
he came upon what was left of it. Its size must have been exaggerated, yet the stones lying about proved that it was no mere negro village. Unfortunately, no carvings could be found, and the small size of the expedition prevented operations toward clearing the one visible passageway that seemed to lead down into the system of vaults which Sir Wade had mentioned. The white apes and the stuffed goddess were discussed with all the native chiefs of the region, but it remained for a European to improve on the data offered by old Moinou. Monsieur Verheiren, Belgian agent at a trading post on the Congo, believed that he could not only locate but obtain the stuffed goddess, of which he had vaguely heard, since the once mighty Mbangus were now the submissive servants of King Albert's government, and with but little persuasion could be induced to part with the gruesome deity they had carried off. When Germain sailed for England, therefore, it was with the exultant probability that he would, within a few months, receive a priceless ethnological relic confirming the wildest of his great-great-great-grandfather's narratives, that is, the wildest which he had ever heard. Countrymen near German House had perhaps heard wilder tales handed down from ancestors who had listened to Sir Wade around the tables of the Knight's Head. Arthur German waited very patiently for the expected box from Monsieur Verheiren, meanwhile studying with increased diligence the manuscripts left by his mad ancestor. He began to feel closely akin to Sir Wade, and to seek relics of the latter's personal life in England, as well as of his African exploits. Oral accounts of the mysterious and secluded wife had been numerous, but no tangible relic of her stay at German House remained. German wondered what circumstance had prompted or permitted such an effacement, and decided that the husband's insanity was the prime cause. His great-great-great-grandmother, he recalled, was said to have been the daughter of a Portuguese trader in Africa. No doubt her practical heritage and superficial knowledge of the dark continent had caused her to flout Sir Wade's talk of the interior, a thing which such a man would not be likely to forgive. She had died in Africa, perhaps dragged thither by a husband determined to prove what he had told. But as German indulged in these reflections, he could not but smile at their futility, a century and a half after the death of both of his strange progenitors. In June 1913, a letter arrived from Monsieur Verheiren telling of the finding of the stuffed goddess. It was, the Belgian averred, a most extraordinary object, an object quite beyond the power of a layman to classify. Whether it was human or simian, only a scientist could determine, and the process of determination would be greatly hampered by its imperfect condition. Time and the Congo climate are not kind to mummies, especially when their preparation is as amateurish as seemed to be the case here. Around the creature's neck had been found a golden chain bearing an empty locket on which were armorial designs, no doubt some hapless traveller's keepsake taken by the Umbangus and hung upon the goddess as a charm. 
In commenting on the contour of the mummy's face, Monsieur Verheiren suggested a whimsical comparison, or rather expressed a humorous wonder just how it would strike his correspondent, but was too much interested scientifically to waste many words in levity. The stuffed goddess, he wrote, would arrive duly packed about a month after receipt of the letter. The boxed object was delivered at German House on the afternoon of August the 3rd, 1913, being conveyed immediately to the large chamber which housed the collection of African specimens as arranged by Sir Robert and Arthur. What ensued can best be gathered from the tales of servants and from things and papers later examined. Of the various tales, that of aged Soames, the family butler, is most ample and coherent. According to this trustworthy man, Sir Arthur Jermyn dismissed everyone from the room before opening the box, though the instant sound of hammer and chisel showed that he did not delay the operation. Nothing was heard for some time, just how long Soames cannot exactly estimate, but it was certainly less than a quarter of an hour later that the horrible scream undoubtedly in German's voice, was heard. Immediately afterward, German emerged from the room, rushing frantically toward the front of the house, as if pursued by some hideous enemy. The expression on his face, a face ghastly enough in repose, was beyond description. When near the front door, he seemed to think of something, and turned back in his flight finally disappearing down the stairs to the cellar. The servants were utterly dumbfounded and watched at the head of the stairs, but their master did not return. A smell of oil was all that came up from the regions below. After dark, a rattling was heard at the door leading from the cellar into the courtyard, and a stable-boy saw Arthur Jermyn glistening from head to foot with oil and redolent of that fluid, steal furtively out and vanish on the black moor surrounding the house. Then, in an exaltation of supreme horror, everyone saw the end. A spark appeared on the moor, a flame arose, and a pillar of human fire reached to the heavens. The house of Jermyn no longer existed. The reason why Arthur Jermyn's charred fragments were not collected and buried lies in what was found afterward, principally the thing in the box. The stuffed goddess was a nauseous sight, withered and eaten away, but it was clearly a mummified white ape of some unknown species, less hairy than any recorded variety, and infinitely nearer mankind. Quite shockingly so. Detailed description would be rather unpleasant, but two salient particulars must be told, for they fit in revoltingly with certain notes of Sir Wade Jermyn's African expeditions and with the Congolese legends of the White God and the Ape Princess. The two particulars in question are these. The arms on the golden locket about the creature's neck were the Jermyn arms, 
and the jocose suggestion of Monsieur Verheiren about a certain resemblance as connected with the shriveled face, applied with vivid, ghastly, and unnatural horror to none other than the sensitive Arthur Jermyn, great-great-great-grandson of Sir Wade Jermyn and an unknown wife. Members of the Royal Anthropological Institute burned the thing and threw the locket into a well, and some of them do not admit that Arthur Jermyn ever existed. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. Hi, I'm Samantha Wicken. And we're going to be discussing facts concerning the late Arthur Jermyn and his family by H.P. Lovecraft, also sometimes uh, published as just Arthur Jermyn or uh, The White Ape is how it was published in Weird Tales the first time. And I believe it was published in 1921 in a magazine called The Wolverine, which was an amateur magazine. Yep, March and June 1921. And then later in Weird Tales and uh, subsequently has been rediscovered, I guess. Uh, First time reading this story for me was, I think, earlier this year. But you guys, you read it before, right? Yes. Uh, right. Yes, it was in, uh, ages ago. Yeah, it was me to one of the, I've, I've read a few stories of Lovecraft and uh, was keen to read more. And then in the mid-80s, they reissued pretty much all these works in three big fat omnibuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of, uh, I came to, came to it quite, quite early. <laughs> It's uh, it's not it's not well remembered, I guess. Is uh, uh, Samantha? You you said you didn't know what you didn't even know who it was by, right? Right, and uh, after I read the first couple of lines, oh yes, I remember this story. Like sure. Jim, I had read it ages ago in a, a collection of Lovecraft works, and um, it, yeah, it didn't stay with me. I think because it wasn't as horrific to my mind no. as some of his other stories. It's not. It's not very horrific at all. What, what's so funny about it to me is, is that what, what he, what the main character is killing himself over is like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cool, actually. <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a function of our more enlightened times as a reader, as opposed to the readers of the time in which it was written. It was probably more horrific. Uh, there's a funny line about that. In fact, in the article uh, or the, um. In a letter Lovecraft wrote to Weird Tales, uh, in part complaining about the changing of the title uh, to The White Ape, um, he 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 was saying, you know, this is truly hor- horrific story, uh, blah blah blah. And then he says, and everybody says it's the most horrific story they've ever heard, except he says one chap who has traveled to Rhod- in Rhodesia and declares himself bound by ties of the purest and most undaunted affection to all of the denizens, Negro and Simeon alike, of the Dark Continent. And I was like, is, that, is he talking about uh, some <laughs> fictional person, or is he actually talking about a real person? It sounds to me like it, somebody read the book, and or the story, and saying, this is not horrific at all. Uh, those are our brothers and sisters in the jungle, and uh, all the other human beings uh, are our brothers and sisters, too. Well, it's sort of an anti-racist person. <laughs> Sounds like that Lovecraft saying, "No, everybody's racist except for this one weirdo." Well, I was thinking as I, we were 
think you have points to discuss, you know, about how this isn't really that horrific. Um, also, Lovecraft grew up on stories, um, the Alan Quartermain stories, where mm-hmm. Africa was all mysterious and you could put whatever you wanted in the middle of it because nobody knew anything about it. And mm-hmm. um, But now, of course, we know everything about it. We understand and are taught evolution. And this story is like, they're giving away everything in the first couple of paragraphs here. You know, totally. there's a real surprise. <laughs> and and uh, but it's hard to it's hard to put myself in the position of someone who doesn't already know this stuff and uh, and already knows not to be appalled of you know person because of their parentage or whatever. And and mm. uh, and uh, so I guess that's why it didn't stick with me. Oh, that's not even scary. That's just you know a little weird. But you know, no, it's it's more humorous to me than anything else. I, it, there there are some really <laughs> sad parts in it, but. It it feels like Lovecraft's making a joke, <laughs> which is which he well, does. Too, another but part I, of it I have a feeling he's not. I, I don't think he is either because he's also talks about you know oh my gosh this uh, one of his ancestors went off and married someone in the theater you know and and mm-hmm. like you know nowadays <laughs> it's no big deal but back then it was like oh no their bloodline is ruined forever because yeah. just because they married someone and not not recognized by society as they called it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a strange cool. one. I, I actually found this sort of more horrific on this reading, weirdly enough. Oh, really? Um, well, the first time I read it, it was kind of, I mean, I was, you know, I was coming to Lovecraft and, I, you know, I was looking for Elder Gods and this was kind of, oh, this is yeah. one of these early tales before you hit his stride. There's, there's no Dreamlands, there's, there's no Necronomicon, there's, there's no nothing breaking the walls of reality and eating souls. No. And, you know, it kind of, I have, even if it's called the white tape, I think I would have guessed from the first two paragraphs, I could see the twist coming. Um, But kind of reading it this time, it's kind of, um, I was kind of, it did sort of, I got it a bit more because I can see it kind of, this is the seed of a lot of other Lovecraft stories, this kind of um, atavism and degeneration. Mm-hmm. And kind of, I thought a lot more kind of, well, actually, it would be quite freaky if you, you know, discovered your great-grandmother was actually a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that might be pretty crushing. I know, like, S.G. Joshi always, always talks about this story as being about miscegenation. And it's kind of, mm-hmm. no, it's not. This is about bestiality. Let's cut to the chase here. You know? <laughs> bestiality, yes. <laughs> I'm glad someone else That's worse. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but you're right, because um, in the story of Dagon, uh, uh, they find out that their ancestors are these deep ones. And, and you know, that it is the seeds of the, some of his other stories, now that you mention it. Yeah, I think you mean you know, in right? Uh, Shadow over Innsmouth? Yes. Yeah, it's a lurking fear as well. Um, yeah, that, rats in the walls. It, it's uh, totally a... Uh, Pigman's uh, model. <laughs> it's a complete well, atavism can... story. Yeah. So it does fit into the well, tradition, right? Yes, if you look at it that way, and, and I play the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, so you can see how all of his stories the main character loses sanity points you know as as the story progresses so. <laughs> i i made a um a because there's so many people in arthur german's family i made a a chronological list it's not listed chronologically but like who is the ancestor to who just so i could keep track of them and what their 
what their professions were because it, those are all mentioned, but it, it it's sort of jumping back and forth in time. Mm. So I made the list. the The first guy is Wade, Sir Wade uh, German. He's the explorer. He's the one who takes the uh, quote unquote Portuguese wife, who is really uh, obviously the white ape princess. <laughs> um, takes her back to England, uh, where they have a child. Um, that child's name Philip, who is uh, very agile, um, but he doesn't live up to the family tradition of being, you know, intellectual uh, uh, aristocracy. He he's, ends up being a sailor, and then before he he joins the navy, um, he fathers a child named Robert, who is more like his uh, grandfather uh, Wade in that he's an anthropologist and. He goes back to, um, uh, I think he goes back to Africa. Oh, no, Philip goes back to Africa, jumps ship, and <laughs> it sounds like he, he revisited. He back in the Congo. <laughs> yeah, his motherland sort of thing. <laughs> mm. um, Robert uh, is the anthropologist. He has a son named Neville who uh, runs off with a dancer. <laughs> um, that's his profession, by the way. He runs off with a dancer. Then Alfred... Um, is the one who joins the circus um, and gets into a, a, a fight with a boxer, <laughs> boxing gorilla. Um, and then finally we get Arthur, the poet scholar, uh, the, the main character, uh, sorry, right before, uh, uh, yeah, Alfred and then Arthur, who is the poet scholar and who is, I guess, um, Lovecraft in this story. Right, he's got this. Uh, he's got this ancestry that he's very proud of. Um, and when I, I was reading in, I, I guess the Call of Cthulhu, the Call of Cthulhu and other stories are weird stories. S. T. Joshi book that um, Lovecraft was uh, apparently almost suicidal when his family had to leave their their great house in uh, Providence. And they had to sort of go down into a lesser home. He was he, he was kind of like uh, Arthur in that respect. He he wanted to have the grandeur of his home back. He wanted to fit into that tradition. It so, was also like Arthur in more ways as well. Um, mm-hmm, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of like a matter of record that kind of um, Lovecraft's mother um, felt that uh, the child Lovecraft was exceedingly ugly and used to keep yes. him away from from people and uh, I mean much has been made from this over the years of kind of um, uh, what effect it had on him um, um, uh, but it it seems to be kind of you you can't remember Lovecraft's father did um, die in an asylum Um, Mm -hmm. and there are many many parallels in this uh, in this story to little events in Lovecraft family history Um, not over as many generations but you can see kind of why Lovecraft has a thing about uh, having a tainted heritage and the the, mm-hmm. the fear of um, a degeneration. <laughs> well, I was going to make a point about that. They talk about how Sir Arthur, our, our main character, who is so horrified he sets himself alight, is actually the ugliest of the succeeding generations from Sir mm-hmm. Wade even though the ones that are in a direct line from the ape goddess are look just fine. And I can't help but think that each generation marries someone that's not of 
appropriate social level, diluting their noble bloodline even more, adding to yeah. Arthur's final. Although he's very smart and very poetic and very educated, he is also physically the most unattractive one of the line, and he's the furthest removed he, from. He's the he's the most unattractive he, one that's allowed out of the bedroom, right? So oh, yeah. there were some that were. So ugly that they were not allowed, or so horrifically unhuman looking, the, they were not out. Al- the two out of unknown the house. children, right? And they, right. Um, yes, they died. Neville's siblings. They were so malformed that yeah. they died. Neville's mm. siblings. Yeah, Arthur's mother's described as being a musical singer of unknown origin. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Every, Actually, every, uh, any one of those could be a uh, gorilla linked at some point. <laughs> I wonder if that's the point he's trying to make. <laughs> I think it is. I, 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 I think, you know, there's sort of this, um, one of the things that we see is, is, is the re- lack of respect for the lower classes, right? <laughs> Very um, much so. And we, we got to imagine that this is not just a Lovecraft thing, though, because it, there is such a thing as, you know, your station in society that's below your station, that's above your station. Um, it is improper for someone to marry below their station, because of the very reason of, you know, you're going to pollute your family's rich tradition of being, you know, servant to the king or whatever it is. Um, and so when, when, when these children are, you know, end up being sailors, a common sailor, oh my <laughs> God, he's, he's not even an officer. It's, it's terrible, right? <laughs> or he runs off with a, with a dancer or who, who is, you know, Perhaps uh, what was the it was the gameskeeper's daughter, you know. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, can can you believe the scandal? Um, and what's the worst scandal, of course, is <laughs> is that oh, and and his mom was a monkey, right? <laughs> Grandma was a monkey. That's that's the even worse scandal. Um, Lovecraft apparently in uh, in this letter um, also said that the inspiration for writing this story was reading um, a rather famous book uh, called Winesburg, Ohio. Have you guys read that book? It's a no- kind of a novel, fix-up kind of novel from 1919. No, I've heard, I'm familiar with it. I've heard of it, but never actually read it. So, so the idea, uh, Ray Bradbury also took inspiration from that book. Um, he said with the uh, Martian Chronicles, in that the Martian Chronicles is sort of about a community. Uh, you you see the whole story by looking at individual stories and how the, all the stories are linked together uh, in that way. And sort of, it, it's it's been quite inspirational for a lot of writers, I think. Um, but of course, this is not a uh, you know, novel, and it's not a series of stories, although it is a, a kind of about a, a community. And what's so interesting about this story is I was trying to think, who is telling this story? Because it seems to, I mean, just listen to the first line. Life is a hideous thing, and from the background behind what we know of it, appear demon, demon, demoniacal hints of truth, which make it sometimes a thousand to- a thousandfold more hideous. Science already oppressive with its shocking revelations will perhaps be the ultimate exterminator of our human species, if separate species we be, for its reserve of unguessed horrors could never be borne by mortal brains if loosed upon the world. It sounds like um, it's not a person, but 
telling the story. It's like just sort of a godlike being. But then it also says our, right? So it makes us think maybe it's Lovecraft telling the story. Well, from, from my reading, actually, it's an, it's an echo of a future echo to Pickman's model. Uh, because unlike a lot of Lovecraft tales, it's not particularly dripping in his usual um, squalmous, eldritch, gibbous kind mm-hmm. of uh, uh, adjectives and uh, that kind of um, very sort of uh, intense description. It's actually a lot more matter of fact. And um, I mean, I actually want to do a narration of this because I think it would be a really fun piece to do. And mm-hmm. to me, it sounds like... Um, a gentleman in a club, like um, in Pickman's model, which makes mm-hmm. it more explicit. But it sounds like a gentleman holding court saying, now here's a tale for you, gentlemen. And he starts mm-hmm. with this rhetorical start and then unfolds the tale. It's just the way he, um, he phrases things, of like with the, with the gorilla boxing match death. You know, by the time mm-hmm. uh, the other cast members could intervene, there was very little of the baronet left. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of. A, you can imagine, a, you know, a man in a smoking jacket with a big, you know, brandy balloon glass of port, you know, holding court and setting forth this tale, and it re- it's, it fits into a tradition of these sort of jungle tales, which you know were called clubman tales. Uh, Lord Dunsany wrote several with a character called Jorkins, who would be in his club and he'd tell a tale of his adventures in the Empire. And uh, the, with sure. the end, where it says, you know, and some people even dispute Arthur Jeremy disappeared, ever existed, rather. Um, you know, that gives it the twist of the, is this just a, one of these clubman's tales, you know, a tall story mm-hmm. from far off parts that's a bit strange and peculiar. Did it really happen? You only, you only have the gentleman's word for it that it does. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, that, that tradition is a, a fun tradition, too. Arthur C. Clarke did the Tales of the White Heart. Yes, which is right, sort of yeah. a science fiction version story of that. By the way, Mr. Jim Moon, um, at least a couple of those are public domain. <laughs> so I've had it. But uh, um, Isaac Asimov did uh, the Black Widowers Club. It was, was that uh, sort of a mystery version of, of the same thing? I, I've not read those. Uh, I think it's along the same vein. There's a, I mean, it just become like a good motif later on for various... Uh, mm-hmm. um, there was a series in the, um, on the BBC in the 70s called Supernatural, which uh, featured this gentleman's club called the Club of the Damned. And to gain entry, um, a Victorian gentleman had to uh, tell a tale that would freeze the blood of the other members. Uh-huh. And if he failed, he'd die. <laughs> in each episode, was a self-contained story every week with uh, someone else coming up and uh, presenting their tale to the club members. So it's, uh, That sounds terrific. Yeah, it's... it's very, very literate, very um, more high drama than kind of your usual genre fiction TV. But uh, nice. I, I see you know, the tale of Arthur Jeremy could have been one of those tales. <laughs> it seems to uh, <laughs> it has that sort of, has that tone of uh, would have made me laugh. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been had my blood blood frozen, but I would have definitely laughed at this <laughs> funny story. Um, but it isn't just funny. I think there's there is some sadness in there too. I mean. Uh, when we do find out, uh, you know, we we see mostly it's history, and then when we get to Arthur German when he's finally born, and we see his story, um, you know, he, he he's he's really ugly, uh, or at least very unconventionally beautiful, <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
he's he's sensitive. Um, he he wants to follow into the tradition of his family, be you know go and be an explorer. His mom is a music hall dancer who had him you know tutored, uh, and uh, she's sort of rejected by society. But he's he's determined to make a good go of his family name. Right, he goes off and does his thing, and uh, and then um, it's kind of sad. It's. I mean, it it is. It's it's humorous if you look at it sort of lightly, but it's actually quite a sad story. Because yeah, see, I got the impression so, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's he, we get so close to him in that in that section. Um, it's almost more close than we can ever I, I've ever been in a Lovecraft story. Uh, in you know, empathizing with with a Lovecraft character is not really what I do, right? You just sort of follow along in their footsteps and see what happens. In this case, I was like, oh my god, this poor guy. Mm. I mean, it is well, a I, when you read that... Oh, sorry, Jim. Go for it, Samantha. Well, when you read that bit about science already oppressive with its shocking revelations and how the horrible truth is, here we have Arthur Germain. Uh, science has come and ruined Victorian society and their and society and their ideas of their superiority over other races is being eroded by science. And so now we have, you know, evolution being discussed in parlors and stuff like that. And so here's poor Sir Arthur, who is actually descended from the apes and becomes well-educated, does well in school as a poet, uh, has more esoteric ideas, overcoming his his evolutionary track, his bloodline. The thing is, aren't we all Arthur overcoming our Mm -hmm. ape bloodlines? And in the end, we're just... Apes, you know, all of us, and it's just there's exactly. a whole other there's a whole other layer there of maybe this is a statement on science with its horrible truths. Are we better off knowing or not knowing? Obviously, knowing was too much mm-hmm. for Arthur, you know. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think a lot of people. I mean, on not us three, I guess, but uh, a lot of people uh, don't like the idea that they are related that that that. You know, gorillas are are distant cousins. Uh, in the you know, they they want to subscribe to the theory that people have always been the way they are. You know, they reject evolution. They reject um, you know the 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 spread of um, species out. But uh, this this story sort of straddles the line between uh, rejecting it and accepting it. Um, it. It says maybe we should reject it, even though it's true, which is kind of a funny uh, reaction. Um, but I think we go the other ways. We say, you know, they are our cousins, uh, and you know, we should be proud of our ancestors, even if they were uh, living in trees and such. Well, as Douglas Adams said, Earth men are not proud of their ancestors and never invite them round for dinner. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to go play with my digital watch now. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, really. Just ignore the truth of science. And <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, in this, there's an interesting undeveloped thing because it's kind of the uh, the ape city. They are described as hybrids between this mysterious white mm-hmm. race who built the city and then the white apes that populated it. And so you do sort of have this lingering question of, well, all right, we've got a handle on the, uh, the the white ape side of things, but what of the other side of, you know, who were these mysterious other humans, if humans they actually were, or proto-humans that... Um, 
it is implied that we are actually all hybrids. Um, that's right. Uh, that's from the, the city, uh, isn't it? Joshi yeah, yeah. yeah S.T. Joshi seems to think that the. Uh, I think that that he's reading a little bit too much into it. Uh, he says, "Okay, the last clause is critical." So he says, "If separate species we we be," is that's from the first paragraph of the story. He says that last clause is critical. Um, this generalized statement concerning the possibility of human beings may not. In, entirely be human is not logically deducible from a single case of miscegenation. What Lovecraft appears to be suggesting is that inhabitants of the primeval African city of white apes are not only the missing link between ape and human, but also the ultimate source for all white civilization. Uh, The entire white race is derived from this primal race in Africa, a race that has had corrupted itself by intermingling with apes. This is the only explanation for the narrator's opening statement. I don't think that that's true. I think that it it's the all it, it is a explanation or an explanation. He says if we were if we knew what we were, we should do as Sir Arthur German did, i.e. commit suicide. We may not have a white ape in our immediate ancestry, but we are all the products of an ultimate miseducation. Um but see, I think the problem here is, you know, it, you have to believe in miscegenation <laughs> in order for you. I mean, I, I think bestiality is, re, is is a possibility that people actually do that. Um, I'm ashamed of that if people are doing that. Um, however, um, however, miscegenation, I don't think is possible because I think that 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 assumes things that yes like you you were saying samantha eugenics first if if for eugenics to make sense you have to actually know what's good right and And the problem is this story could have been an exploration of what happens when you breed in bad qualities you know like 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 he was toying with the idea of you know eugenics at that time time was even state-sponsored in many countries they were getting very popular um what if lovecraft was just saying, okay, well, let's take it the other way, and exploring that in this story. Sure. Um, but, you know, uh, Mr. Jim, you're also being a little bit disingenuous when you say it's just a case of bestiality. He married that ape. Well, <laughs> he married that ape. He made an honest ape of her, that's true. He did. <laughs> and, I mean, the way, you know, the way people are describing these people, you know, I don't trust the narrator's view of events. I mean, the the fact that he's considered ugly is uh you know there is a picture there is an illustration he doesn't in the original uh publication in weird tales there's an illustration the guy doesn't look particularly ugly he looks a little bit like lovecraft but you know with glasses but he is not particularly ugly looking fellow um but the thing is, is maybe she was a really pretty uh, princess ape right <laughs> And the reason they had to hide her away is she was so angelically beautiful. I mean, eh, maybe not. But the thing is, is that that um, idea that we can see the community's contempt uh, around the in the story. It's it's you know, told to us every time somebody gets married. You know, it's oh a Portuguese trader. Oh my God. Oh a dance hall singer. Oh my God. Right? It's like pathetic. How could someone lower themselves to marry such a person? 
um, that well, those, those judgments are from a, a group of racist assholes. So I would say their judgments aren't that great. That being said, I'd rather be a poet than a sailor. <laughs> One character that we haven't discussed is the uh, butler at the end who gives us the, what's happened when uh, the box arrived to the house. Here's this you know, okay. very proper, very proper English butler, you know, having to tell the story of what happened to his master to the authorities, I assume. And um, what was his name? I, I don't recall his name. I was looking for it as I was bringing it up. But they talk about the servants sporadically throughout the story. You know, the servants weren't allowed to go uh, wait on, right. you know, the princes. And, and they're, they're just kind of edged in sideways, you know, through the story. The, um, uh, the, the black nanny was uh, apparently a very right. horrible person. And, and, but the English butler was very, you know, very proper. And, and, and there's a little... I don't know... What to make of that? Maybe we're re- trying to read too much into the case of the servants in the story, but they—they they aren't really. Um, I find well, one of them marries into them <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> one of them marries into the family. There's the 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 daughter of the mm-hmm. gameskeeper, right? She's she's in the family, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we don't get enough uh, detail about them uh, to get a, a whole lot of things. However, uh, there is one. Interesting thing, and I, I followed this. Uh, it was a nineteen. Yeah. Oh, okay. The Sons. Okay. Sons, the family butler, is most ample and coherent in his version of the story. According to this trustworthy right. man, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's probably he's probably where the story came from, right? Well, it, well he possibly, told the he told yeah. the story to. Yeah, he told it to to whoever's telling the story. Um. Uh, there was a 1993 comic book adaptation of this uh, in a comic called The Worlds, uh, Worlds of H.P. Lovecraft uh, from Caliber Comics, um, adapted by uh, uh, Stephen Philip Jones. Um, and what was so strange about it is, is I was starting reading, and I was like, this isn't, this isn't facts concerning the late Arthur German and his family. But it is. It's just, it, because of the way Lovecraft tells the story, there's not much dialogue. So what he's done is, He's taken the one scene. He starts it in uh, the um, Robert uh, German is entertaining his uh, a guest who's arrived, um, and in the very next page it shows him being strangled by Robert, um, and that's in the story. I just had forgotten because it's just gla- glossed over very quickly in the story, but um, Robert gets a visitor named Seton who comes in and uh, meets him privately. We don't know what they meet about, but um, later, as soon as he finishes strangling him, he runs upstairs and he starts shooting the children. Right. Um, So he's just been handed some facts concerning the Arthur, uh, the German family, right? (laughs) Obviously. Um, and the only one he doesn't kill is uh, Neville's son, which I, I guess would be, let's see, who's Neville's son? I can't remember now. Neville's son, it would be Alfred. Alfred, yeah. Um, the only one he doesn't ma- manage to kill is Alfred, and Alfred eventually gives birth to Arthur, or gives <laughs> Arthur life. Uh, um, so uh, this story is kind of weird in that respect because it, it focuses in on parts that I wasn't, 
super familiar with. And then later on, it goes all off on this weird tangent, like uh, talking about uh, the Blue John Gap, which is a story by, like I was saying, a story by um, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, from 1910. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Now, that's 11 years preceding or so the publication of of this story of uh our facts concerning the case of Arthur German and his family um but the connection between them I thought there's no connection why did he do this why did he start talk telling the story of the blue john gap and then I realized while I was listening to the uh, uh audiobook of the blue john gap the terror of the blue john gap there's a, there is a connection, and that's really interesting. Seton is in both stories. Um, so uh, Seton, the oh, yes. Samuel Seton, as mentioned, right? Um, he's mentioned in the beginning of the Blue John Gap as being the guy who did not believe the story of the uh, of the main character in the Blue John Gap, and he says, "I can't believe you didn't help. You didn't believe my story, Seton." Um, should I, should, um, fate befall me, blah, blah, blah. Um, I hope, a fr- a, uh, someone else other than you, my friend could, uh, answer, you know, could believe me because everything I've written here is true. And then it says later on, uh, slightly under that, uh, who Seton was is not known. And so he said, oh, well, that's a weird kind of, uh, did Lovecraft just happen to pick the same name? I bet he didn't because he was a pretty good scholar of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is a weird, weird story. Well, something else that came to my mind talking about older tales, um, there was, mm-hmm. there was an, an Alan Quartermain story. Sure. I was thinking of which, that one too. Yeah, where, where they go in search of the colony of white people in the middle of the jungle, and I when I was she when I was re, is that the one? Uh, she yeah, she who must be obeyed. I think is she is the first book, and then it's uh, uh, return to she or something like that. And there's a white princess mm-hmm. in the African I, jungle. I, I don't remember by. the details of it, but I do as I was reading this, and he was talking about the ancient city that seemed very uh, advanced at the time, but is now all crumbled. I wonder if the hybrids that he's talking about is an extrapolation of what happened to that eventually happened to that city in the Alan Quartermain story, which he would have grown up on, you know, as it was a much earlier tale, you know. Um, I agree. Yeah, I think it's likely. It's kind of a a, a sort of a more realistic version of that story. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly more realistic. Uh, There's also a link Um, to Tarzan Edgar Rice Bullows as well. Um, How so? Uh, well, in the um, Tarzan novels, which are a good deal more fantastic than um, anything we've ever seen in the film or TVs or cartoon series, um, you know, they're full of lost cities. And, and there's a lost city called um, Opar, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is populated by, um, by apes. Uh, and it's a lost colony of Atlantis, if I remember rightly. Yeah, and uh, they have crossbred with apes. Hmm. Yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, but um, um, from like a in Opar, the uh, the females appear as beautiful white princesses, while the uh, the, the uh, male <laughs> Oparians are like kind of uh, Planet of the Apes kind of style guys, <laughs> sort of ape men. 
That is that is uh, quite priceless, actually. Yeah. Um, the the white white apes appear in uh, other John, the John Carter books as well, right? Mm. Um, although that's off planet. Um, the the traditions are all in there, and um, I, I I quite like this story. I I I feel like it's been neglected somehow. I like it more than well, now that really- we're talking about it and taking it apart. <laughs> <laughs> but it's rather, I, I didn't rate it very highly. It's, oh, it's one of his early works, and you know, you can see the mm-hmm. glimmers of what he's later going to do and its historical value. But I say, when I came back at this time, I really enjoyed coming back to it for the, for this show. And um, I mean, I really appreciate the kind of um, the humour and the pathos in it, and, and the way the way it's told. <laughs> um, I think it's actually it's a different style of prose to what you expect from a Lovecraft poem, and. The actual the, the prose is very steady and confident for an early story as well. It's uh, um, he's not he's not hitting the adjective pedal and going into purple overdrive. It's uh, true. And I say this this would be a you know it's a great it's a, like Pickman's model. It's a great story to be able to, to read aloud because it's written mm-hmm. so well like that. It doesn't it doesn't sort of break the um, sort of the rhetorical uh, conventions of a told tale. Um, Right, and uh, and there is kind of I'm sure there must be a, a touch of um, British humorous writings in, inspiring it in that that respect. There is a, I say I know you was a huge Dunsany fan, so you would be familiar with the Jorkins tales and the sort of um, quirky humor in those, um, and the sort of British wit, dry British wit, and you know, that's in here. And it's kind of I appreciate this a lot more now. Uh, now I've I've took off the Cthulhu blinkers, as it were. <laughs> You know, cause, I mean, I'll be honest. When I first read this story, I was what fourteen. I was just, I just discovered the Call of Duty role-playing game, and you know, when I got right. my hands on these bumper volumes, it was where are all the quotes from? Tell, give me the, you know, give me the first-hand source for everything I've read about in the rule books. And mm-hmm. if a story, do we also mm-hmm. mentioning great old ones, Necronomicons, or anything part of the established Lovecraft mythos? I'd be like, oh, on to the next one, quick, you know, get me to the meat. Yeah. And you know that's uh, th- that adaptation I was talking about the comic book adaptation. That's ac- exactly where they take it. Um, so it 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 makes this connection to the Blue John story, uh, the Terror of the Blue John Gap, which I think is is also a story you would like to read aloud. Uh, no, uh, I don't know if you would like to. I would like you to read aloud because <laughs> it is very much a um, it is it, it is a series of journals and it's got a lot of. Um, Cool, actually, and the illustrations from uh, the Strand are really great. Um, I, I just posted a uh, version of it yesterday um, with a beautiful uh, illustration of a guy standing in a cave meeting the the creature of the Blue John Gap. By the way, Blue John is a is a kind of mineral that is real and is in England uh, that is used to make um, vases and cups and stuff like that. Um, rather pretty. Uh, it also turns up the, in a Call of Cthulhu scenario, Terror from Beyond the Stars, oh, in that book, yes, where the Mygo are blind, are mining Blue John. <laughs> so there you go. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. So the, um, yes, that's right. Oh, have you found <laughs> is that, I, can't remember, I think the scenario is the, the Pits of Beneldoon, is it? I can't remember now. Is it? I know the book is here, I can't remember the actual <laughs> adventure now. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, it, it has never actually said what's in the box, um, but I presume it's his grandma. 
<laughs> yeah, his grandma. Mm, right? Great-great-grandma. Because that's what he was expecting, right? He was expecting the the white ape that's being passed around the tribes of uh, the Congo. Um, by the way, that is also a, um, interesting, there is a, also an interesting connection there with Arthur Conan Doyle as well. Um, you know, everybody knows how Arthur Conan Doyle was a champion of fairies and how no... Not a lot of people gave him a lot of respect for that because obviously um, it's insane. However, um, he was also a champion of the fact that there was horrible things happening in the Congo. Um, And he was uh, given denial for that. Uh, People were saying, no, there isn't. And he was like, oh, yeah. And here's some more stories about what's coming out of there. Right. Uh, That uh, the Congo was like that. That story, Heart of Darkness it's kind of a true story. Mm. Yeah, uh, um, it was when uh, you know Henry Morton Stanley, after he found Livingston out there, had a big scandal in one of his later expeditions about how the British in his uh, expedition treated horribly the um, natives who were helping them with the expedition, kidnapping pillaging, um, raping, uh, letting them die of thing. There was just a huge scandal of how it was treated at the time. And um, I wonder, wonder if that informed uh, Conan Doyle's feeling. I guess it was roughly about the same time, maybe after that, but as a confirmation of that. But before uh, Lovecraft wrote this story, you know, maybe mm-hmm. he's exploring um, our treatment of, of Africa. And African and the whole horrible truth of science, quote unquote, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that some of that was brought forward. Um, just to be a, a, a little bit untimely, but also timely, um, there was a uh, there's a show on now called Penny Dreadful. I don't know. I, I know Jim Moon's saving it up, but um, Samantha, are you watching that show? I am not watching that show, but I've heard good things. Okay, well. Um, one of, one, of, one of the cool things about it is it's, it's sort of a mashup of every uh, late 19th century horror and weird story. Um, and the main character, played by one of the James Bonds, I can't remember the name. Timothy Dalton. A good one, though. One of the, <laughs> Timothy Dalton. Oh, my gosh, uh, I love Timothy Dalton. Uh, yeah, he's great, and you haven't seen him for a while. But Timothy Dalton plays sort of a African explorer like, uh, I want to say Richard Chamberlain, but that's, that's the actor. <laughs> Um, who's the uh, Alan Quartermain? Yeah. Alan Quartermain. He plays right. an Alan Quartermain kind of character. In fact, he's the father of Mina Harker uh, in the on the oh, show. Really? Um, yeah, and uh, in the latest episode, they just had um, uh, sort of one of their medium characters uh, was you know being an inhabitant, uh, not inhabited, I know, possessed by a demon or something. And she was talking about what he was doing in Africa, why he keeps going back to Africa, and why his son died in Africa. And one of the things she was saying as the demon, and you're not sure whether this is true or uh, true or she's just projecting it, but the reactions on Timothy Dalton's face are like, they could be interpreted either way. <laughs> is that he was he and his son were raping their way across Africa. That's why they're going there. This African explorer thing is not what they're there for. Well, one of the things that um, they said about Stanley was that they um, uh, he wasn't really this great explorer. He just uh, hacked and slew and stabbed his way across Africa. 
Right. You know, that was well, after, it, the, uh, after the scandal. Well, I say Africa did become kind of the uh, 19th century equivalent of the, uh, used to be the Grand Tour, where you send off the young noblemen to tour around the great cities of Europe. In the uh, 19th century, uh, you know, the same class of Britain sent their sons to the colonies and uh, where they ran riot. Uh, and it was hunting, right. drinking, and whoring. Uh, and all the things yeah. you couldn't get away with at home. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and nobody was about, right? Because what stays in Africa, stays in Africa. Well, this Africa. is it. I mean, I find it interesting. It's kind of, um, you get later in this story, halfway through, you find a bit more about Sir Wade. And you can put it together that Sir Wade is the white god who returns to marry the yeah, princess yes, and, and sets himself up, apparently, you know, Kurtz-like uh, in front of this, this tribe. Absolutely. And all three of those stories that the, 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 the Congolese natives are talking about are true, mm. right? The, there's, the, the first, there's three different stories about, the, about this, this uh, white ape princess, and they're all three of them are true. The first one is that the, there's a white, white god came, and then there was the second one, his son came, right? And then the third one is uh, Arthur German, I think, or something like that. It's, it, 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 was, it was obvious that all three of them were, were true, story, true events. Um, but I, I want to touch back on what's in that box, because we, we're presuming it's his grandma. That makes sense. But in this adaptation, it's so strange. Instead of having it be the grandma, it's two statues. And I'm like, what? So I'm looking at it, and they're Cthulhu statues. Um, and one is made of Blue John, and the other is made of, I, I don't know, some sort of other kind of stone, right? I was like, what? Cthulhu statues. So the guy, Arthur German, goes down into a cave in, called the Blue John Gap later in the story, um, and he finds the subterranean ocean. Um, and then out of this subterranean ocean, instead of a giant creature that's in the, the actual Blue John story, comes uh, a fish man. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here? And then he says something really strange. He says... Uh, Philip German, son of Wade German, father of Robert. I'm your great-grandfather, boy. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, he's still alive. Okay. And then he says, um, uh, we, uh, he says, uh, some built the Congo city and worship, he's talking about, he's saying he's part of the spawn of Cthulhu. Some built the Congo city and worshipped Cthulhu even after the great one fell dream, dead to dream. The spawn wait for the day of the that dead Cthulhu will rise and take over the universe, blah, blah, blah. And he says, um, oh, we can, we're deep ones, and we can mate with any species. Uh, he says, Mawanyu told, told you about the ape hybrids. When my father found, found the spawn city, he gladly mated with them too. And so I'm starting to think, okay, he's making it about sort of the shadow over Innsmouth. Um and he says, then we take to water, and finally, and then the the stand-in for the character in in the Blue John Gap shoots the the Deep One, his grandfather, which is in this case, it's the stand-in is Arthur German, and shoots the thing, and then he goes and lights himself on fire. So it's a it's a different ending. But why did he do this? Why like I, why did you have to change the story? And I was realizing it's for exactly the same reason that Mr. Jim Moon and 
I and everyone else, when we read Lovecraft, we say, how does it connect to the Cthulhu mythos, <laughs> right? <laughs> we must connect it, is what we think in our head. Mm. And I say, that's, I think we're really doing a disservice to Lovecraft, because this is a much better story than this forced connection to, to the Cthulhu mythos. It's, I, I think you could infer that, but to change it is... It's terrible, because Lovecraft knows what he's doing much better than we do, I think. Um, well, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> this guy did. <laughs> Tying it to deep ones, it is, just kind of, it is kind of the worst kind of excesses of um, kind of uh, the lesser Lovecraftian writers. I can see writers. how we got there. Yeah. You, you, I can you, see how we got there with that Seaton character being in both. <laughs> that it's like, oh, you, you could make that connection. This interpretation is possible, and... There's nothing wrong. Like, if I presented this theory as my own, you would say, well, yeah, I guess that's possible, Jesse. I just don't, I don't know if that it, there's enough evidence to support it other than the Seton thing. Uh, but what's so weird about it is, is technically it's entirely possible. There, I think, wasn't there an amulet? No, uh, the only thing that isn't mentioned is, is kind of interesting. There was a, not an amulet, a... Oh, um, the locket. The locket. And what's in the locket, right? Okay, let's see. Here, it's right in the The locket was empty. Mm. There was nothing in the locket. But it had the, the German coat of arms. Right. Mm. Right. Okay, let's see here. Um, the reason why Arthur German's fragments were not collected in berries lies in what was found afterward. Principally, the thing in the box, the stuffed goddess, was a nauseous sight, withered and eaten away, but it was clearly a mummified white ape of some unknown species, less hairy than any recorded variety, and infinitely nearer mankind. Quite shockingly so. Um, and what happened to the locket? Did they burn that too? No, they threw it in a well at the end. But, you know, I was, right. I was thinking, um, you know, the, uh, the grandfather who killed the two kids, who went crazy and killed the two kids, I wonder if... Hmm? what he received from uh, that explorer was the picture that was in the locket. I think that's possible. You yeah. know, uh, and, uh, sense, although yeah. it's, it, 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 it daguerreotype would have some evidence of what Arthur finds out at the end of the story. And at the beginning of the story, they say, well, Arthur's the end of the line. Who knows what he would have done had he not been the end of the line. And I think that what his grandfather did is what, what he would have done had he gotten that information and there were living relatives. I think that he answered that question in yeah. the story. I think that's right. But uh, is it a uh, – the other thing was we don't get is, is why they're doing it. Like we know that they're doing it, and we can in, interpret it one of two ways. One, one way I would think that the, is a way of interpreting their action, but, you know, both the killing yourself and killing your family, is you don't want the, the disease of – miscegenation to spread. And the other way is you're just so horrified that you you uh, want to have that. But you want to end it, anymore. right. That's what I thought was the horror factor. But of course, like Jim says, I'm yeah. looking for uh, the Cthulhu mythos reference. And of course, I also play the game and, and know that when you lose a certain percentage of sanity points, you go insane. So I think that uh, whatever information they received, in, in Arthur's case being the actual box with his actual sort of mummified ancestor and whatever uh, Sir Robert, I believe it was, uh, received um, the report back from, from 
the expedition, um, I think that put them over the percentage, you know, they, then they totally lost it <laughs> and, had to, and had to make it not be. And that was why they went. This could not be, and they had to make. Yeah, it had not to make it not be. Right. I like that expression. There's a there. There's also. I mean, there's a a quite horrific sort of um, thing too. Of just imagine somebody delivers one of your ancestors to your door. Oh yeah. You know, stuffed. Has been been carried around. You know, uh, and traded back and forth between tribes as a as a sort of a a. Uh, yeah, like a trophy right. of, uh, you know, we imagine that, the, you know, on the on the walls of the German house are, you know, the heads of wildebeests and lions and, you know, uh, yeah, zebra skin not, rugs and all that. Well, not even that, because Sorry. they said something about uh, Sir Wade collected things that one wouldn't ordinarily collect. Uh, like, what could those right. items be? You know, they and most people, like you say, have the zebra skins, the stuffed animals and whatever. What other things... What other horrific things did he bring back, you know, from the mysterious, crumbled, ruined city in which he spent a lot of romantic time? You know, it's just uh, <laughs> just speculating on what those could be is it's a whole nother discussion. Yeah, it's it, it, in in thinking of that makes me also think of see I I I have sort of tended away from the Cthulhu mythos stories completely um, in this podcast, and and the reason is. I think that they are corrupting of the, I mean, just when people think of Lovecraft, they think Cthulhu plushie now. And that's really not what he's about. And that, that was not what he was going for. All that sort of, you know, the, the, this, uh, this, like, he, he never would have said sanity points. Great idea. No. Well, that's how we do it when gamify it right i think what um, i don't know if jim agrees with me about the left class stories themselves i don't find as compelling as what people have done with the worlds that they created i think what a lot of the stuff that has sprung from the stories has been uh, a lot more i don't want to say horrific but a lot more compelling to me than the original story and that might be a function of they're written by people that are more contemporary with us as opposed to the Victorian mind that Lovecraft w- was writing for, you know. Yeah, he's even pre-Victorian almost. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think you know, like we, the connections you're make, you were saying uh, there um, between what's what's on what's in that sort of house of museum, you know, museum of African colonization, right? Um, that makes me think of another story by Lovecraft of this period called. The Hound, which is also has an, uh, I want to say amulet, I want to say locket, but it's an amulet, right? And these guys are de- you know, grave robbers, and they're depraved, and they're insane, and um, there's no connection to the Cthulhu mythos unless you make one. But the story is, it's it's really great. It doesn't need to be, you know, tied into the Cthulhu mythos. It, it, it's just really great on its own. Well, the thing is that Lovecraft, I mean, you know, he didn't even use the word uh, Cthulhu mythos. I mean, he was kind of, he was had a very laissez-faire, very loose kind of, you know, you invent these tomes, god names, ancient lands, and they're, they're a backdrop and a reference and a flavor. And he, you know, they're, they're elements in his, this tale he wants to tell. Whereas kind of, as it sort of developed in the 
by other writers in like the intervening years, it because the clue mythos becomes the tale itself. Uh, that's the, mm-hmm. you know that that's a that's a big it's a big difference, and it's kind of I think you know some people coming to Lovecraft will be quite surprised by kind of well actually where's all this stuff coming from? This only just mentions a book, this story, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I you know, I think you know when you take the Cthulhu blinkers off, it is you appreciate the stories as stories a lot more. Um, and this is a, this example, this story is a great example of that. Of uh, once you're not looking for the Necronomicon in it, it it's, there's all sorts of fascinating, imaginative things to play with in there. And that's what I that that's why I think I, I wanted to do this story is because it 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 it's disconnected from the regular Cthulhu mythos. Um, it's it's a good story on its own. It's kind of funny. It's kind of sad. Um, it's nice and short. Um, I like it. I, I I think it's been sort of sadly neglected, even though I mean it's got you know a lot of the racist uh, stuff that's in there. It's a little toned down, and because of that that sa- uh, sadness at the end, it's um, it's uh, it's touching in a way that I think a lot of the other Lovecraft stories aren't. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, as, as you say, it's kind of. Lovecraft doesn't really have very many sympathetic narrators <laughs> or lead characters, whereas, you know, poor old Arthur Jeremy is. He's kind of, he's a man who's got his family, his family and his family name back on track, only to have it uh, crushed before his eyes. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.